It's a real pleasure for me to be here with you this morning. I was, uh, I mentioned earlier <clears throat> in the first service that I'm, you know, I'm originally from Danvers, Massachusetts. You all know where that is. And um, when I was early in my married life, we, my wife and I moved to Pennsylvania, and that's where we raised our children, and I worked in ministry uh, most of the time I was down there. And five years ago, five and a half years ago, we moved back. And uh, we're living in Merrimack now. We're really excited about that. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm from Danvers. I'm from the North Shore. And uh, see, my mom's here right now. I didn't expect that. And uh, <laughs> what I told the first service, Mom, block your, block your ears, is that I really, it's a miracle that I'm standing. I remember one of my, uh, uh, someone said when they found out that I got saved that if Chuck Knowles can get saved, anybody can get saved. <laughs> and, uh, and then I had a, um, a friend of mine used to, I worked with, he used to tell me that uh, he was going to come to my church and tell everyone what I'm really like. And so, uh, <laughs> which was really a good person, Mom. Yeah. You know, so anyway. <laughs> no, it wasn't. That's the real deal. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, one of the things that I've been really blessed, Pastor uh, JP has been away on his uh, sabbatical, much needed. We're very excited about that. Um, but uh, the services have been tremendous. And, and three really stood out to me this summer. They were all really good. But three, three things that stood out to me. Um, uh, Javier gave us a message um, that was fantastic. And I learned what backbiting actually means. Um, if you remember, see, I'll, I'll, if you weren't there, see what backbiting Javier told us that it, it, it's like when you're walking and, and somebody comes up behind you and, and, and bites you on the back. That's, that's backbiting. <laughs> and then he went on to talk about vampires and he just went on and on and I'm thinking, where is he going with this? And he made a brilliant point. How easy is it for us to be distracted? And I've thought of that many, many times this summer, that the enemy wants to distract us. And here he went, and he went down and, and spiraled down into this distraction that ended up with vampires, had nothing to do, and yet he brought it back home and had everything to do with it, and it was uh, fantastic. Um, uh, last week, when Brian, uh, Brian spoke to us, had this daunting task of uh, preaching on the imprecatory psalms. I've been to seminary, and I'm going to tell you, I have to admit, I didn't know what imprecatory meant. So I looked it up, and an imprecatory psalm is a psalm where the psalmist um, imprecates. <laughs> That's what the definition said. I'm like, okay, okay. Imprecate. So anyway, uh, what that means is to call down judgments and, and uh, the anger of God. And, and he didn't steer away from that. He went right at it. And in so doing, we were, and he admitted at the beginning, he said, as the, the reader read the psalm, he cringed. That, it's a cringeworthy psalm. And uh, all this about smiting your enemies and and, and, and what happened, uh, he, we, we learned about a part of the nature of God that we don't talk a lot about, and that is his justice. 
He's a God of justice. And we see a lot of injustices in the world. And it's really comforting to know that we serve a God who is interested in justice. But the biggest or the most impactful moment for me this summer was when Pastor Jack was speaking to us. And he was uh, expounding on David's experience with Bathsheba and where um, Nathan confronted him over his sin. And he told him, Nathan told this story of this rich man with all these sheep and this poor man with one little lamb and how they sacrificed that lamb because the rich guy didn't want to use any of his sheep. And David was outraged. And Nathan said to him, you're that man. And David didn't resist that. David heard those words. You're that man. And what really drove it home to me was then Pastor Jack talked about how there have been times when he realized that he has said hurtful things toward people, damaging things, that he was that man. And that he's, and this is, he, he, did, he said, I felt that, ah. Uh, I really appreciated that humility. I really appreciated that ability to hear that unequivocal condemnation. And so that's why it's really important to have that tone, to have that spirit, that we can have ears to hear. David needed to have ears to hear what the Spirit had to say to him through the prophet Nathan. Pastor Jack had to have ears to hear the reality that he was that man. And we need that same spirit to help us hear what the spirit has to say. So I'd like to take a moment and pray that the spirit would give us ears to hear this morning. Father, I'm so thankful that that you love us. I'm so thankful that you want to be with us, that you want fellowship with us. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say so that there would be no impediment. There would be nothing that stands in the way between any of us and you and our relationship with you, that we would find all of those things pulled back, that we would hear your verdict in what you have to say and that we would agree with it and we would not resist it. Give us ears to hear, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The psalm is printed on the back of your bulletin, or you could open up your Bible. It's the 14th psalm. And it starts off with some pretty bad news. You ever hear that? I've got some good news, and I have some bad news. What do you want to hear first? We always want to hear the bad news first so that we can finish up on a high note. And so this is exactly what the psalm, uh, what David, uh, he does here. He starts off with the bad news. Uh, C.S. Lewis once wrote, The Christian religion is, in the long run, a thing of unspeakable comfort, but it does not begin in comfort. It begins in dismay. And it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without first going through the dismay. 
We have to face the facts. We have to see what the score is. We have to see what it is that we're talking about if it's going to have any deep and impactful meaning to us. And so David gets right to it. He starts off the psalm by saying this, the fool in his heart says there is no God. So right off the bat, when we think of fool, and like a lot of Semitic words where the Hebrew is bigger, it's more encompassing, the famous one is shalom. We think of peace. If I were to say to you, there's peace on the earth, we're thinking about a, 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 a lack of war or strife. But the, the, the Hebrew word shalom is much bigger than that. It's a sense of well-being, a sense of prosperity, uh, comfort. It's, it's, it's a big word. Of course, it also means no war or strife, but it's a bigger word. And this word fool isn't just stupid. The word is nabal. And what it means is it's dumb, stupid, a lack of morality, absent of morality. So really what David is saying is, the immoral person says in his heart, right from his toes on up, he believes there is no God. And it's this immorality that is an impediment. It's a block. It's a wall. Can't see God. Abigail's husband, was actually named Nabal. Can you imagine naming your kid Nabal? Fool. But he had a lack of immorality. And it did. It eventually cost him his life. But there's a defiance. There's a defiant nature to the atheist. There is no God. I don't believe in God. Right from their toes on up. Many people that don't believe in God take a more logical approach and they say, I'm agnostic. I'm not sure. Because really, how illogical is it to say there is no God? Maybe he's over there. Maybe he's behind the piano. Maybe he's over... We don't know. How could we know? It's pretty arrogant to say there is no God. But we don't see it. We don't feel it. And really, the impediment is immorality. So we know this about the, the fool. We know this about the atheist, but is that it? Well, no. He goes on in the second verse. He's, he actually brings us all into this. If you look at the second verse, the Lord looked down from heaven on all mankind to see if there were any who understand, any who seek God. And what did he find? All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Let that land. Not even one. Other passages we find language similar. Paul writes, We have already charged that all... Both Jew and Greek, that's believer and unbeliever uh, in, 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 in their vernacular, are under sin. 
As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So he's painting this picture. We have these unbelievers, these atheists, but then he brings it all in to us, to humanity. There isn't a one of us who can walk through this door and stand before God in our own righteousness. Not one, the best of us. The, the reformers called it total depravity. What they're saying is not that every single facet of us is completely depraved, but that every single facet of the human being is affected by the fall. We are totally depraved. We need a God. We need a Savior. Every one of us. That's the news. That's the thing where we say, ah, I am that man. I am that woman. David says that they devour my people as though they're eating bread. One of my, uh, I remember studying a philosopher. I really enjoyed doing this. It was uh, Thomas Hobbes. And he, I remember reading a quote, Homo homini lupus. Man is a wolf to man. We devour one another. And that's just the nature of who we are. He went on to say that if, it's a, if they're within our group, we have a tendency to protect them. But anyone from outside the group, there's a problem there. We will attack. We will devour. If you don't believe in Jesus exactly like I do, watch out. And we've seen that. We've seen inquisitions. We've seen people burning at the stake. Not physically, but we, if you study history, you see these things have taken place in the name of God. And we do it even among ourselves. I say us, the church with a capital C. It's a legacy that we shouldn't be proud of and that we need to turn from. But it's, it's in our very nature to devour one another. Paul uses language like tongues to deceive, venom of asps on our lips, full of curses and bitterness, no fear of God. I want to read a, a little section from a, a book C.S. Lewis wrote, the problem, uh, the problem with Pain. He says, Every man, not very holy or very arrogant, has to live up to the outward appearance of other men. He knows there is that within him which falls far below even his most careless public behavior, even his loosest talk. In an instant of time, while his friend hesitates for a word, the things that pass through his mind, we have never told the whole truth. We may confess ugly facts, the meaningless cowardice, or the shabbiest and most prosaic impurity, but the tone is false. The very act of confessing, confessing, an infinitesimally hypocritical glance, a dash of humor, all of it is contrived to disassociate the facts from our very selves. No one could guess how familiar and in a sense, congenial to your soul, 
these things were. How much of a peace with all the rest down there in the dreaming inner warmth. They struck no such discordant note. We're not nearly so odd and detachable from the rest of you as they seemed when you turned them into words. We imply and often believe that habitual vices are exceptional single acts and make the opposite mistake about our virtues. Like the bad tennis player who calls his normal form his bad days and mistakes his rare successes for his normal. I do not think it is our fault that we cannot tell the real truth about ourselves. The persistent, lifelong, inner murmur of spite, jealousy, impurity, and greed simply will not go into words. But the important thing is that we should not mistake our inability, our inevitably limited utterances for a full account of the worst that is inside. That says it pretty well, pretty poetically, better than I could. In other words, there's some bad news. We don't begin with, with hope, we begin with dismay, and it's dismaying. Maybe this morning is the first time that you've ever really contemplated your sinfulness. I mean, really allowed the full light of God to, 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 to shine on your life in such a way that you see to a certain extent, how deep your sinfulness is. You know, the world tells us that we're not sinners. You weren't born that way. You're not a sinner. One of my favorite songs had the quote, I don't need to be forgiven. That's not true. We need to be forgiven. We know better. Deep in our heart, there is this nagging reality that we are deeply flawed. We can lie to ourselves and we can say we're okay, but deep down we know that that is not the case. Hear what the Spirit says. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or maybe that you are well aware of your sinfulness. Maybe you've considered this before. But you're terrified that others might find out. Maybe there are things you've done in your past that you still carry, that you feel guilty over, that you're embarrassed, that you wish so badly didn't happen. Maybe there were things that you did in high school or college or last week or this week or this morning. Corrupt vile things. Know this, you're not alone. The enemy wants you to feel as though you're some exceptional fluke, freak. If they only knew about you, it's not true. You are not worse than anyone else. And I hope this psalm clears it all up. All have turned away all have become corrupt. There is no one that does good. No, not even one. And the New Testament repeats it. But maybe you understand that. And you just don't know what to do. We come into church every, every Sunday. We come in and we look good. You find yourself, as the songwriter says, the stained glass masquerade. 
Is there anyone that falls? Is there anyone that fails? Am I the only one in church today who feels so small? Because when I take a look around, everyone seems so strong. I know they'll soon discover that I don't belong. So I tuck it all away like everything's okay. If I make them all believe it, maybe I'll believe it too. So with a painted grin, I'll play that part again. So everyone will see me the way that I see them. Are we happy plastic people under shiny plastic steeples with walls around our weakness, smiles that hide our pain? But the invitation is open to every heart that's been broken. Maybe then we can close the curtain on our stained glass masquerade. And that's where we get to the good news. We have this whole psalm, seven, seven verses, and we get bad news after bad news, and then we get to the finally, the last verse, and, and David cries out, oh, that the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Oh, I can't wait for that to happen. And guess what? It's happened. <laughs> That's the wonder. This is the glory. We walk in, and we may feel a particular way, but I'm telling you people, we don't have to leave this place feeling overwhelmed. Jesus Christ has come. Are you looking for an authentic walk with God? Are you tired of playing games? Are you tired of that guilt? Just Even if it's a nagging little thing, uh, the Messiah has indeed come out of Zion. And he longs to gather you in his arms like a chicken longs to gather his hens, her hens. He's not looking for an excuse to punish you. He's not mad at you. Jesus Christ took all the wrath, all the anger on the cross. He wants you to experience the fullness of what God has provided through Jesus Christ You know, the, Jesus said that the children of Israel, the children of Jerusalem, they were not willing. He wanted to gather, but they said no. Let's not say no. Let's be willing, dear friends. I got three quick responses that I want to touch on. The first thing is we must hear. Now, this is not some pragmatic recipe. If you do these three things, then you'll feel differently. That's not what this is about. These are just three responses that we have. This is a spiritual endeavor. This takes the Spirit of God ministering to our hearts because people, this is foolishness to the world. For me to say, you are a sinner, the world laughs at it. The world scoffs at it. So we need ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. And the first thing we do is we hear it. We must agree with it. Oswald Chambers writes very eloquently, the proper action on my part is simply to agree with God's verdict on sin as judged on the cross of Christ. That's it. We hear it and we say, yes, it was judged already, thank God.
God is convicting of sin. Let's not justify. Let's not deny. I had a friend, he talked about crybabies and alibi experts. Always have an excuse. Always have a reason. Let's just leave all that behind and do business with God. He has a verdict in Jesus Christ for that. A friend of mine also mentioned that, that he, um, it pleases the bridegroom when the bride accepts what he has done for her. You know, we're, we're Christ's bride, and he paid a, a big price, and we bless his heart when we accept what he has done. We don't have to do a bunch of penance. We don't have to let a bunch of time go by. We can accept on the moment right now what Jesus Christ has done. One of my mentors and colleagues, his dad told him that a Christian shouldn't feel guilty for more than three minutes. What? Yeah, he shouldn't. We find out that we've sinned. We say, oh, God. And then we say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive me. It's taken care of. So we, we must hear it. We must agree with it. But then, secondly, we must confess. The Bible tells us that a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. Apostle John tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from some of the unrighteous things we've done. Is that what it says? From all unrighteousness. Every single thing. You can't drag anything into this that God hasn't covered. I love that wonderful story Jesus tells of the, the publican and the sinner. I mean, and the, and the publican and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee's there, and I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. I tithe, keep the Sabbath. He had all these credentials. And then you had the publican, the, the off-scouring of the earth, the sinner. He wouldn't even lift his head. He just, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm that man. Ah, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, only one of those people left justified. Justified. And it wasn't the Pharisee. The guy who didn't do anything but fell on Christ, fell on God and said, forgive me. And we think of those things and they just nag at us. And yeah, we're right to not even lift up our head. But know that we can, once we approach that throne of grace, we can stand just as much as anybody can in the presence of Jesus. So we have to sometimes get help. Confess our sins one to another, the Bible tells us. Now, um, we don't have to go to a priest and have a priest uh, declare absolution over our sins. We don't have to do that. My rule of thumb for me personally is if I can't shake that guilty feeling, I've gone to God, I've said, Lord, forgive me, and I still feel guilty, I still feel that horrible feeling, I'll go get help. I'll go to my pastor, I might go to my wife or a friend, a godly person, and I'll confess that to them. And I have embarrassed myself many times because I don't care. 
I remember one time one of my friends said, what, is God going to send me to hell number two if someone else finds out about it? What does it matter? The God of the universe knows. That's all that matters. So sometimes we have to get help. Um, don't be afraid to get help. And we're all in this together. And the last thing we have to believe, what did Nathan say to David? He said, the Lord has taken away your sin. People, this is awesome. The Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has taken away my sin. That's awesome news. We went from dismay to comfort. Be comforted. The Lord has taken away your sin.